Let us pray. O Father, we give You thanks and praise. You are great and glorious, but You humbly stoop to meet with people like us, people who have gone astray from Your ways through Your Son and through Your Holy Spirit. You come to us to meet with us, to reconcile us to Yourself, to lift us up into Your heavenly presence. O Father, give us grace. Out of Your grace, give us what we need, life, wisdom, and glory. All these gifts are ours in and through the risen Christ, and we claim them in Him. Fulfill Your promises, O God, the promises that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen. This week and next, we are going to be looking at the subject of abortion, an issue that just won't go away, that remains very front and center uh, in our culture, and indeed even in our own state now in light of the recent law that's been passed. So this week we're going to be looking at what uh, Scripture says about what abortion is, what abortion means. Next week we'll look at what we should be doing about this uh, issue of abortion, this tragedy really of abortion. I want to read uh, for us this morning from Psalm 139, uh, verses 13 to 18. So here again, God's Word. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would fill us with your truth, that we might share that truth with others in love. Father, we pray that through your word you would make us humble and wise. We pray that through your word you would strengthen our convictions to do what is right, to pursue holiness, to pursue justice in all of life and all of culture. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, our King. Amen. G.K. Chesterton once asked, can you hate the world enough to change it and yet love it enough to see it as worth changing? In other words, Chesterton asked, do you hate the way the world is so you see it needs changing and yet at the same time love the world enough to see it as worthy of change and to work for that change? Hating the world as it is because it's a fallen and wretched place. And yet loving the world into what it could and should be. That's the way we as Christians engage with the world around us. Hating what is evil, hating what is wrong with it. But loving the world enough to want to see it change, to work for that change. You know, the world that we live in has experienced a series of revolutions really ever since the 18th century if not further back. A number of revolutions. The American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. 
every one of those revolutions brought a huge toll in human suffering and bloodshed. Some of these revolutions even resulted in millions of deaths. But you know what has been the bloodiest revolution of them all? The sexual revolution. Starting in the 1960s, but we're still very much living through it, the sexual revolution has been the bloodiest revolution of them all. We don't see the bloodshed, but it's all around us. In our country, the sexual revolution and the legalization of abortion has led to the death of about a million babies a year for 46 years now. Worldwide, so globally, it's 50 million babies per year. Since, in fact, it's, it's so many that abortion is the number one killer in the world, the number one identifiable killer in the world. Since Roe versus Wade, more babies have been killed in America than all the soldiers who have died in all the wars our country has fought. Horrors like the Holocaust, which are as terrible as anything we can imagine, still pale in comparison. In America, abortion is the biggest single political and cultural controversy we face. Over the last generation, it has been a source of constant controversy. It's right at the heart of what we call the culture wars. And it's not going away, particularly with recent changes in the makeup of the Supreme Court. States that are in favor of abortion have radicalized their laws to protect access to abortion no matter what happens uh, to the Roe decision. And so earlier this year, New York State signed a bill that legalizes abortion right up to the moment of birth. And this was greatly celebrated in the State House with shouts and with applause. The Freedom Tower in Manhattan was lit up pink that night to celebrate this great achievement, this law. In the state of Illinois, uh, the governor recently signed a bill that ensures taxpayer funds will make abortion on demand available to every woman in the state. Whatever her age or situation, if she wants an abortion, she can have one. But other states have taken a different approach. Georgia, Ohio, Mississippi, and yes, our own state, Alabama. Indeed, as I'm sure you know, Alabama just recently passed one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws in the country. And if this issue does make its way back to the Supreme Court, uh, at this point it seems very likely that our state's law could be the one that is tested in court. And so once again, Alabama looks like ground zero for a major civil rights battle in our culture. But why is abortion such a big deal? What is abortion? Why should we care about it? What do we as Christians have to say about it? What should we be doing about it? What does our culture say about it? Well, the first question really is this. In an abortion, what is aborted? What is being aborted? And the answer to that question is clear. It's a baby. It's a human infant. I mean, it's either a human or it's not. If it is a human, then the case against abortion should be open and shut. Even in tragic cases like rape, it should be an open and closed case. It's, it's rather simple. If it's a human, it should take the complexity out of it. If it's a human, it should have the right to live. 
If it's not a human, no one should care. If it's just a clump of cells, it really shouldn't matter. But the reality is, it's a baby. It's a human baby. And the reality is, we all know that. Today, there's no excuse for not knowing that. Even those on the pro-abortion side know it's a human. They'll admit it's a human. They'll just say it's an expendable human. It's a human, but doesn't have human rights. How do we know it's a human? If we want to ask that question, how, 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 can, we, how can we be so sure it's a human? Well, in this case, both Scripture and science are clear on the matter. Consider what Scripture says. Genesis 1 says God made man, male and female, in his image. And so an attack on another human is an attack on God. That's actually what you see in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood where God establishes the penalty of death for the crime of taking uh, another's life. Man is made in the image of God, so an attack on a human is really an attack on God himself. In Scripture, we know we're commanded to love one another, to love our fellow humans, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The child in the womb is a neighbor. The child in the womb is one we are to love as we love ourselves. The child in the womb is an image bearer. Psalm 139, we read this morning, describes God creating a person in his mother's womb. David writes there, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is contemplating how God formed him in the womb of his mother. David, as the psalmist here, writing as an adult, can look back on his time in the womb and he knows there is a continuity of identity and personhood there. He knows God created him and formed him and shaped him in the womb. He's the same person now he was then, the same person outside of the womb he was inside of the womb, the same person now that he's bigger than he was when he was smaller. In Psalm 22, David even says he had a relationship with God in the womb. He says, God, you were my God even in my mother's womb. Job 31 speaks of God forming us in our mother's womb. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 49 use that same language. Exodus 21, we also read this passage this morning. Exodus 21 gives us a case law where two men are fighting and a pregnant woman somehow gets struck by one of the men. And if the child in her womb is harmed, he shall pay for it. If the child in the womb is killed, he shall pay for it life for life. In other words, what this law in Exodus 21 shows us is the baby's life, even in the womb, has the same value and the same protections as any other human. This is quite literally what we call the right to life. There is a penalty for hurting the child in the womb. And yes, that means in an ideal society, a just society, abortion would be criminalized. It would be life for life. That's what Exodus 21 shows us. In Luke's Gospel, uh, we read this this morning as well. Elizabeth is pregnant with John. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. When they come together and when Mary greets Elizabeth, the baby in her womb leaps for joy. Elizabeth says, when I heard your voice, my baby heard your voice as well and leapt for joy in my womb. John in the womb is obviously a person capable of emotions, capable of relationships, indeed in relationship with other persons. He can respond and even show feelings in the womb. 
Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Even in the womb, Elizabeth recognizes Jesus is Lord. When did he become Lord? When he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. That's when the eternal Son of God became human. At the moment of conception. As soon as the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. That's when he became Lord. The promised King. The Messiah. Life in the womb. Fully human life. Jeremiah, the prophet from the Old Testament, and Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, both say that God set them apart from the womb. Obviously, then, they had personhood before birth. In his earthly ministry, Jesus welcomed children to himself and blessed them. Luke's account even tells us he took infants into his arms and blessed them. And that word that's used there for infants is a word that could be used to describe children in the womb as well as newborns outside the womb. Jesus loves the little children, even those with umbilical cords. And so we must care about these children in the womb as well. We must care about these children in the womb because God's Word teaches us to stand up for the weak and the defenseless. Proverbs 31.8 says, Open your mouth for the dumb. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of those appointed to die. That is, those who are slated to die unjustly. You should speak up for them. And defend them. Proverbs 31.8 says, Plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Who's poorer and needier than a defenseless child in the womb? We're to defend the defenseless. We're to use our strength to help the weakest, to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. That baby in the womb can't defend himself or herself. That's our calling. It's a matter of justice. We know God hates the shedding of innocent blood. He says so many places in Scripture. Proverbs 6.17, God hates the shedding, hands that shed innocent blood. Well, certainly the child in the womb has done nothing worthy of the death penalty. It's unjust to shed his blood. God hates it. Biblically, a baby in his mother's womb should have the same status and rights as a baby in his mother's arms. The location of the child, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, is not what determines personhood. That's not what determines rights. What matters is bearing God's image. And the child bears God's image from the moment of conception. That's a human child. But what we've learned from nature really only reinforces the case from Scripture. We can make this case from the Bible, and we ought to. People who say you can't use the Bible in these kind of debates, I would say no way. You know, we certainly can and should. But we can also appeal to nature, to science, to our observations of the world around us. Biologically, there's no question it's a human life from the point of conception. This has been the scientific consensus for a long time now. So just to give you one example of this, the American College of Pediatricians says this, biological research confirms that human life begins at conception At fertilization, the human being emerges as a whole genetically distinct living human organism, a member of the species Homo sapiens, needing only the proper environment in order to grow. The difference between the individual in its adult stage and in its zygotic stage is one of form, not nature. Those are doctors speaking. They're exactly right. At the moment of fertilization, the baby's sex, height, and eye color are all determined. By the third week, the heart is beating. 
By six weeks, there are brain waves. By week 10, there are toes and fingers formed. By 20 weeks, the baby can recognize its parents' voices. And this is why the the, the pro-abortion slogan, my body, my choice, is really a denial of science. For the pregnant woman, that's not her body inside of her. That body belongs to another person. A single person doesn't have two types of DNA or two beating hearts or two heads or 20 fingers and 20 toes. What the woman has inside of her body is not just more of her body, but another person with a body of his or her own. A body distinct from her body. That's why the whole idea that there could be such a thing as a safe abortion is simply a lie. An abortion destroys, violently destroys another human being. It ends a human life. This means a planned child is a human and an unplanned child is human. A child conceived in love is human. A child conceived in rape is still human. All are worthy of protection for simply being human. The circumstances of conception do not alter the child's humanity. That child in the womb differs from his or her mother only in being smaller and less developed and perhaps more dependent. But none of those differences would rationalize the killing of that child. Using a term like calling it a fetus instead of an infant or a baby doesn't change the matter either. That's simply a scientific term to describe a human life stage. It's no different uh, you know, it's, it's no different than speaking of toddlers, teenagers, or adults. These are just ways of describing stages of human development. What is abortion? Abortion intentionally kills a human life. In other words, abortion is murder. And it's not cruel to say that. It's cruel to do it. It's not cruel to say that. It is the truth. It must be said. We must speak the truth. If you want to get angry over something, get angry over the fact that 60 million plus Americans have been murdered in infancy over the last generation. And at this point in time, I think everybody knows this. Even if they don't want to admit it, we all know it. The sonogram, for example, allows us to see the baby's development in the womb stage by stage. There's no excuse for treating it as anything other than another human. And this is why I really believe that the Roe decision will go down as the Dred Scott of our era. I'm convinced that future generations will be horrified to see that we allowed a whole class of persons to be dehumanized and disposed of so carelessly. It is a tragic injustice. There's no other way to describe it. And it should be noted here, too, that abortion disproportionately affects blacks and other minorities. So just to give you one example, this would be true of other cities as well, similar statistics, but in New York City, 60% of black women who are pregnant terminate their pregnancy through abortion. Blacks make up 13% of the American population but account for 35% of all abortions in the U.S. Statistics show that 25% of the black population has been lost due to abortion. If this were happening any other way, we'd all call it what it is, and that is genocide. If black lives matter, they have to matter in the womb as well as outside the womb. Alveda King, Martin Luther King's niece, said abortion and racism are evil twins. And if you study the history of abortion with Margaret Sanger and the history of Planned Parenthood, you see this is, this is 
Certainly true. Abortion and racism are evil twins born of the same lie. Where racism now hides its face in public, abortion is accomplishing the goals which racists only once dreamed. We've gotten to the point in our culture where defending infanticide is called progressive and trying to stop it is called barbaric. Those who want to be able to poison and crush and destroy an innocent human life in the womb are considered progressives. And those who want to stop that and protect that life are considered backwards and barbaric. The reality is abortion is one of the big E's on the moral eye chart. And if you get this one wrong, it's hard to see how you have any moral compass at all, how you can be trusted to make any ethical judgment. Pro-abortionists will describe their view as favoring reproductive rights. That's the language that's used, reproductive rights. But it's not the right to reproduce that's in question here. It's the right to kill what you have reproduced, to kill the product of your reproduction. That's the issue. Or sometimes abortion will be called a form of health care. To deny a woman's right to abortion is to deny her access to health care. But it's not health care at all. There's nothing safe or healthy about abortion. It's always going to result in death, in death for the child. And it can have some pretty traumatic effects for the woman who seeks out an abortion as well. Sometimes abortion is described as a right. Uh, It's referred to as reproductive justice. What a terrible use of language that is. It's not a matter of justice. It's a matter of injustice. No one has the right to kill an innocent human That's simply not justice. From the pro-choice side, the argument is made that what determines the value of the child, what determines whether or not the child has the right to live, is the mother's will. Whether or not the mother wants that child. According to Roe versus Wade, it doesn't even matter the father wants the child. Every child is fatherless. Uh, According to the logic of Roe, the decision is between the mother and her doctor, not the mother and even the father. And the mother decides if the baby is worthy of life or the dumpster. That's the logic of Roe. It's her decision that confers personhood or denies it to her child. Legally, that's how abortion works in America and in many other places. The CEO of Planned Parenthood said in an interview, this in the last year or so, CEO of Planned Parenthood said, there is no specific moment when life begins. It depends on the pregnancy. Scripture aside, that is scientific insanity. It's so unscientific. All you'd have to do is read a biology textbook to know better. The beginning of life can't depend on the pregnancy. It is what it is. It's either human life or it's not. But this is the logic of abortion. It depends on the will and decision of the mother. See, what really stands behind abortion, and I'm not going to try to deal with all the different hard cases people can throw out. I just want you to understand fundamentally what's going on. What stands behind abortion is a commitment to a certain kind of lifestyle with a certain definition of freedom and and a commitment to autonomy and independence and a certain understanding of equality and a certain view of, of sex that sex can be casual, uh, that it need not have any meaning beyond immediate pleasure. It's important to understand the philosophy of life that drives abortion. 
I want you to understand the logic that stood behind the legalization of abortion a generation ago and really the same logic that makes it so important for so many to keep access to abortion legal today. This is why people are willing to fight and and go to such lengths to keep abortion legal. It's because abortion really is part of a lifestyle. It's tied to a way of life, an idolatrous way of life. Partly having to do with our sexuality, partly having to do with a certain view of equality. On the sexuality aspect of it, it really all comes down to this. This this is how things look in our culture. This is the idolatry of our culture. Sex is our God. Children are the sacrifice. Abortion says we are willing to sacrifice children on the altar of sexual pleasure. Abortion is a way of making sure people can have sex without consequences. The right to abortion is really the right to sex without consequences. The pleasures of sex without the responsibilities of sex. But the connection between sex and children ought to be obvious. And parents, if I'm... You know, if your kids are going to have a lot of questions for you after this sermon, I'm okay with that. You need to be having these conversations anyway. Okay? So if this spurs them on, great. Look, if you're not open to having children, don't have sex. It's that simple. If you don't have a child with this person, don't have sex. Don't sleep with them. Sex, in the nature of the case, can never be casual. And the fact that sex can create a life shows you that. It has too much power to ever be casual. Sex can never be meaningless. It has a built-in meaning and a built-in purpose, a built-in design, a built-in teleology. And when we deny all of that, when we seek to evade its meaning, we end up hurting ourselves, certainly. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that, how sexual sin is uniquely sin against yourself, against your own body. But of course, it ends up hurting children as well. What was the slogan of the sexual revolution? Make love, not war. And yet, what was the result of the sexual revolution making war against the products of our love? What we are doing in sacrificing children, we are seeking to preserve adult autonomy. And it's exactly what ancient cultures, ancient pagan cultures did as well until the Christian faith came in, the gospel came in, and brought an end to all of it by transforming these cultures, something we have to hope for in our own day as well. But if you look back at these ancient cultures, these brutal, barbaric cultures, they all practice some form of abortion or infanticide, where unwanted children could be left out, exposed to the elements, where they could be discarded on the trash heap, where they could be killed through poisoning or some other method. We have found through historical studies, through archaeology and so forth. This is certainly true of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. It was true of the Persians. It was true of the Chinese, the ancient Hindus and Arabs. And of course, we know it's true of the ancient Canaanites as well. In fact, in a lot of these cultures, it wasn't just a matter of disposing of the child out of convenience. Children were actually offered sacrificially to the false gods, to the pagan deities. The child sacrifice had a religious basis. And so we find this referred to in Scripture. In the Bible, we find people sacrificing children to the god Molech. And so in Deuteronomy 12, uh, God speaking through Moses warns his people. He says, do not worship like those who offer their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Abortion is quite literally A holocaust. The word holocaust means whole burnt offering. It's a term used in Scripture for the ascension offerings. 
But the pagans had their own holocaust. They turned children into their holocaust, offerings to their gods. And the tragedy is we have done the same thing in our culture. The God of choice, the God of my body, the God of freedom, the God of equality, the God of casual sexual pleasure. These are the gods our culture serves. And all of these gods require sacrifices, and very often those sacrifices come in the form of children. There's a sexual side to this, but there's also a, a, you know, a twisting of our sexuality, but there's also a twisting of what equality really means. We need to understand this as well. Abortion is not only driven by a desire to break the bond between sex and children. It's also driven by a desire to equalize men and women, to equalize men and women in the workforce, to make men and women completely interchangeable pieces. After all, if women have to carry children... They're saddled with that responsibility. They can't compete with men on a level playing field in the working world. And so to make sure that no woman is penalized professionally, she has to have the option of aborting any unwanted or untimely child. In other words, abortion is serving a twisted notion of equality. It's part of a futile and unnatural attempt to make men and women interchangeable pieces. And this is why we're told constantly that abortion is a women's issue, even though men are obviously also involved. It's why we're told that to oppose abortion makes you a misogynist, a hater of women. This is why abortion is often described in terms of empowerment, that it's all about empowering women. So Merle Hoffman, one of the leading feminists who pushed for legalized abortion back in the 1960s before Roe was even handed down, said this. These are her own words. The act of abortion positions women at their most powerful, and that's why it is so strongly opposed by so many in society. She says in her book on the abortion rights movement that uh, she says, well, no, that abortion ends a human life, but she says it was worth it. It was worth sacrificing the child in order to preserve the independence and career goals of women. In other words, abortion is really about personal freedom. And women should not be required to let a child get in the way of their dreams and aspirations. And so this is how she concludes her argument, talking about abortion and its connection with freedom and pursuing your dreams and independence and autonomy, her conclusion is abortion is as American as apple pie. It's just part of our way of life. What I want to say is if abortion is central to the American dream, it's time to dream another dream. It's time to find a different dream. There's another feminist, Mary Elizabeth Williams, who puts it this way. Again, these, these are her own words. She says, all life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right in her circumstances should trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her. Always. Abortion saves lives, not just medically, but in the roads it allows women to choose to go down, in the possibilities it allows them. I would put the life of the mother over the life of the fetus every single time, even if I still must acknowledge that the fetus is indeed a life. It is a life worth sacrificing. There you have an abortionist in her own words. 
What she means, ironically, when she says abortion saves lives, what she means by that is that it saves a range of choices for the woman. It's not that it saves lives, it's that it saves a lifestyle. It keeps her freedom and her lifestyle and her independence intact. Mainly, it keeps intact her freedom to reject motherhood and pursue a career, just like men do. It's freedom through death. But it's a false freedom and an unjust death. If others have to die, if innocent people have to die for you to live the way you wish, maybe there's something wrong with the way you want to live. One more example of this, Barack Obama, when he was president, this is from 2011, on the anniversary of the Roe decision, because in the mind of the pro-abortionist, Roe is worth celebrating. And so celebrating that anniversary, this is what Obama said. On this anniversary, I hope we will recommit ourselves more broadly to ensuring that our daughters have the same rights, same freedoms, and same opportunities as our sons to fulfill their dreams. You see that? Daughters can't be penalized just because they have the wounds. They have to be equal to our sons, and it's abortion that ensures that equality. If, if our daughters are going to pursue their dreams the same way our sons do, then abortion is necessary because you cannot let a, a child get in the way of that dream fulfillment. Abortion is founded on a version of personal freedom. It's founded on a woman's right to fulfill her dreams, to do anything the boys are doing, so to speak. It's based on an egalitarian dream of radical individualism and careerism and consumerism. It's based on a radical denial of nature, the things that make men and women different. Yes, this dream does require sacrifice, but the dream is so great, the sacrifices, the slaughtered children are worth it. They're just the byproducts of pursuing a dream. The logic of abortion says to the woman, you don't have to sacrifice yourself to fulfill your dreams for your dreams to come true. No, your child can be sacrificed in your place in order for your dreams to come true. I want you to see, abortion is a counterfeit gospel. Abortion promises a woman, your dreams can come true. And yes, again, there will be a sacrifice, but it's not the sacrifice of the self. No, your child can be sacrificed if that's what it takes to keep the dream alive. Abortion, in other words, reverses the pattern of the gospel. In the gospel, God says to us, I will die for you. In the false gospel of abortion, a mother says to her child, you will die for me. In the gospel, God says to us, I will die for your sins. In abortion, a mother says to her child, you will die for my sins. It's a complete inversion of the gospel. What does a woman say when she defends her right to an abortion? She says, this is my body. But those are the exact same words Jesus spoke in the upper room. Jesus said, this is my body, but with the exact opposite meaning. She says, this is my body as she takes an innocent life. 
Jesus says, this is my body, as he gives himself, as he gives his innocent life for the sake of the guilty. Abortion has become the bloody sacrament of our culture's idolatrous religion. Abortion promises freedom and power through death. But it's a false promise. True freedom and true empowerment do come through death. But they come through the death of Jesus. True freedom and true empowerment are not found in the shedding of the blood of the unborn. They can only be found in the blood of Jesus. And you need to understand this too. His blood covers every sin we could ever commit, including the sin of shedding the blood of innocent children. You have to get that as well, or you'll walk out of here self-righteous if you've never had anything to do with abortion. You have to understand, Jesus died for the abortionists as well. But whereas the logic of abortion says freedom and forgiveness are found in shedding the blood of this child, the true gospel says no, freedom and forgiveness are found in Christ in the shedding of His blood. Jesus became a baby to save us, to save even those who kill babies. He shed His blood so those who shed blood might be forgiven. This is the good news. I'm a pastor. I'm in the business of covering sins for a living. But I don't want to cover sins with lies and deceit because that really won't cover them at all. I want to cover sins with the blood of Jesus. And I want to tell you, any sin can be covered with the blood of Jesus. Why is abortion so wrong? Abortion's not wrong because babies are cute. It's not wrong for sentimentalized reasons. Abortion is wrong because God says so. Because the law of God says so. We talk a lot about the sanctity of life and human life does have a kind of sanctity or dignity might be a better word. We really need to talk about the sanctity of God's law in this conversation as well. Why is abortion wrong? Because God says so. And because God in His Word, God in His law requires us to protect the lives of the unborn. Abortion is mass murder. We have to say that. But we also have to say abortion is wrong, not just because it gets the law wrong, not just because it breaks God's law, but also because it is a false gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel, a fake gospel. It comes with a false promise and a false freedom, a false salvation, a false dream. It's time to dream another dream. It's time to help our culture dream another dream. The dream of Jesus, the dream of the true gospel, with the freedom and forgiveness Jesus brings, with the power He brings, power over sin and over Satan, the joy and the peace Jesus in His Gospel promises to us, that's our hope. And that's what we have to share with our culture. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that You would give us grace to know Your truth, to speak Your truth, to live Your truth, to seek Your forgiveness. We know we're sinners, Lord. We make no pretenses about that. We are sinners. And we pray that You would forgive us, that we would know Your forgiveness, that we would be bathed in the blood of Jesus, washed and made clean no matter what we've done, that we would know that, and we would go proclaim that same good news to others. Our culture has got blood all over its hands. The blood of the innocent. But that blood can be cleansed. That shedding of blood can be forgiven through Your Son who came to this world as a baby and who grew up and went to the cross and shed His blood that sinners like us, sinners like...
those we're surrounded by in our culture might be forgiven and might find true freedom and true power in Him. Father, would You do these things in us and through us and for us. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.